The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today is Fergus Cullen, who uh, is in a different part of the world, which is why we're doing this so late. So, Fergus, introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? As you get involved, interested in markets and commodities, and where the hell are you? Oh, well, thank you for having me on, Michael. So, I'm based in Bali. I've been living here coming up, coming up five years now. Originally moved here after quitting my jo- job as an asset manager in corporate world in Australia, worked that most of my 20s and uh, yeah, decided corporate world wasn't for me and decided to try and make it on my own trading and that's sort of been my journey. I started documenting it in COVID just because the lockdown and was quite bored in the house. I got involved in Twitter and have kind of had an online presence since then and yeah, I'm a Kiwi in case anyone can't pick up from the accent up on a farm in New Zealand and uh, yeah, left there and have sort of been bouncing around the world ever since I finished uni, uni there. So that's just a quick sort of background on me. What made you uh, choose Bali? Just a sort of a mixture of temperature, lifestyle. I think I always wanted to be close to the beach. Like here we can just walk down to the beach. Surf's great. People are lovely. I can still pop home and see the parents who have now retired to Gold Coast in Australia. So that's only a short flight away. And it's actually quite good for, I've recently had a baby. And so we, it's actually, the education's great here. And we also get all the help you want, which is lovely. Having like a sort of a cleaner and a nanny is also a huge help for sort of a young family. Wouldn't be able to afford that in Australia or New Zealand. Congrats on that. So, okay. So you said you quit on the asset management side in Australia. You didn't, weren't really all into a kind of the corporate lifestyle anymore. Is there anything that, that you miss from those days? I mean, I think a lot of people get attracted to, trading because there's the dream of not having to talk to the man, so to speak. But, you know, the man is the market and can be a lot more cruel than your boss. <laughs> yes, certainly. No, there was definitely um, definitely missing the regular salary for the first few years. Yeah, it's what I think it was Taleb said, like the three most addictive substances in the world are, what was it, heroin, tobacco, and a monthly paycheck. And after leaving a really well-paying job, certainly feel that. Like you can do well for a year trading, but as anyone that's done it knows, it's usually lumpy. You usually have a good few months. You invariably like extrapolate that, and then you have a drought for another six months or something. And so, yeah, that's definitely the sort of security and consistency of pay. That's that was really hard to handle. 
for a number of years, yeah. Was your focus primarily on uh, Australian equities, on US equities, European? Where did you focus your trades on? So when I was working in asset management, I met who's still my mentor to this day, Brad McFadden. He kind of introduced me to the whole sort of distressed, unloved world of equities and said, takes us really anywhere something's hated and trading at a super cheap valuation, then that's where I kind of find myself. Before actually quitting the job, I did get into income trading for a number of years and that's how I built build up my sort of nest egg to start with before getting it to a scale that I can do more of that sort of full time. I'm going to make the assumption that you are not all in on NVIDIA. Uh, <laughs> no. It's not exactly <laughs> play. But the distress point I think is worth teasing out a little bit because, you know, let's face it, it's been hard to find, I'd argue at least, truly distressed assets because every time you're on the verge of some interesting dislocation where an entire asset class gets distressed, there's a wall of money that comes in. And that's not just in the U.S., but that's you know globally. So how have you thought about trying to identify distressed assets when policymakers seemingly are very quick to, to step in? Yeah, well, that, that's the key point. And that's, that sort of wall of money has been what we've known the last like two decades is there's been so much easy money and also cheap energy around that pretty much every asset's been bid up to sort of crazy valuations. And so that was kind of the starting point of like what's actually been capital starved. And that was what really led led me to energy. And it's one of the few sectors that we've, we've got in the world in this period of really easy money that's just been starved to capital. And so that's where you actually get the cheap valuations. And so from there, it was searching out the most hated areas of energy where you could get the biggest margin of safety and really focusing there. Okay, so let's play with that for a bit then on the energy side. I mean, last year, that was unequivocally the biggest winner. It was actually pretty stunning how, at least when it comes to U.S. markets, energy was the standalone. It didn't look like at all like a bear market if you just had you know the XLE ETF, for example, the yeah. energy ETF. This year is a different story, right? Mm-hmm. Now, maybe some of that's just digestion from last year, you know, kind of classic MENA version. But when you talk about the sort of idea that, that energy is where there's a lot of capital that was starved from the sector, how do you go about even identifying those that will end up being winners? The space itself has you know, done okay over the last decade, but let's face it, it's not as sexy as ChatGPT and other things that are getting you know, attention, investor attention. Yeah, I guess it starts with the whole premise to believe that um, energy demand is going to continue to grow. And that's I think, the idea that we can run the world on renewables is a flawed, flawed concept in any appreciable time frame. And so, when you go through that, like a just have a quick sort of run o- overview of like demand growth. If you did break it down, really, what I always hear people saying is that sort of oil demand is going to roll over, and a lot of that's kind of focused on developed countries. So the issue with that is sort of developed countries. And now, sort of minority in the world, we've got the developing countries that make up the vast amount of the population. And if you break it down in developed countries consuming, it's about the equivalent of 13 barrels per person per year, whereas in developing countries, they're at about three. And the thing with developed is our demographic growth is really going nowhere over the next few decades, whereas developing, they're going to add, let's call it 2 billion people by 2050. And so just if you keep that status quo, if they're only consuming three barrels per person per year, that's going to add 50% to the whole energy system. And if you assume that they're 
Well, these countries are climbing their S-curves, which I believe they are. You only have to look at sort of India or China's demand growth. Then that could easily double the whole energy system. And so when you come at it from that angle, then it's pretty safe to say that the historic sort of growth rates, energy of that one, one and a half percent is going to be maintained out into the future. So that's the demand side. And then if you look at supplies just being hammered, like with oil, it's in decline sort of six, seven percent on the supply side. And that's taking us away from that growth that we need. So like if you forecast forward at the moment, there's 100 million barrels a day we're consuming without adequate additions to supply. We're looking at sort of 20, 20 million barrels a day by sort of 2040. So that's obviously a huge issue and really object to the people that sort of forecast that renewables are going to take up all the slack. It just The numbers don't work and can dive right into that if you'd like or otherwise we can focus more on the investment side. No, that, that's good. But then there's always the question of sort of the execution yeah, side of it, yeah. right? Execution's everything. Oh, oh, right. Oh, oh, right. I mean, oftentimes, you know, for example, when I talk to people that are bullish on gold, for example, they make really compelling arguments on gold and then they express that trade through gold miners, <laughs> yeah. which tend to not really correlate to gold, yeah. right? Now, there's a stronger correlation between oil and energy stocks, the drillers, obviously. But it seems to me that if you're going to use some of those stats, like you just mentioned, for a bullish case on energy, you know, you ideally want to go directly into the future side, but then you've got rollover issues, yep. right, that, that are against you. Yeah, well, you've really got three different ways. Like I always sort of break it down to play, say if you're just bullish oil and you want a clean way to play that. The cleanest would obviously be to go straight into the futures market. I don't really mess around futures themselves. I don't like sort of dealing with the whole margin aspect. So, But you do have futures options, and then you can just play backwardation and – Backwardation is great because if you can express your view out a few years and with the market being in backwardation, means like the, the front month's higher and as you go out a few years, it gets cheaper and cheaper. So at the moment, I think we've low 70s for WTI and you can buy it out two years in the low 60s. So that's a great way to kind of express a bullish view on oil without having to take jurisdictional risk operational risk, all the risks that you get stuffed up with in commodities. That said, like you, you've also got the other two ways, which is I was going with producers, which is tough as well, because then you've got to deal with all the operational risk. Like we've seen how tough it can be to make money with the likes of shale or my preferred sort of vehicle that I've been really involved with, which is oil services. And this is sort of digging through the likes of offshore oil rigs, OSVs, the sort of sort of offshore support vehicles and others that are coming out the back end of the bankruptcy cycle. And these guys have often wiped out all their debt. They're trading their assets, trading for cents on the dollar compared to their replacement cost. And so that way you get a very attractive sort of entry price, very low risk and sort of a long runway to see the thesis play out. Do you look at energy companies, in, since you use the term jurisdiction, in other countries as being more distressed because there's the kind of geopolitical discount. I have to assume there's some really interesting plays in China, in Brazil, which, you know, there will be more government-owned type of entities that way. But do you consider that or do you just say to yourself, you know what, go for the U.S. companies just because of the regulatory and geopolitical side? Yes, I definitely look at um, everything internationally. I own a lot of um, all over the place. Like I'm just thinking in my portfolio, it's not – 
by any means US centric. It's I've got quite a few recently. I've been buying in Singapore Exchange, so quite a few around around Asia. I generally steer clear of some of the more like yeah higher jurisdictional risk, just because there's nothing more annoying than being absolutely right about the overall sort of broad view and yet get taken out because I don't know some got nationalised or there was some unforeseen sort of circumstance that that I try and step clear of that. Like a good example of why I find oil services so attractive as well is they are quite broadly spread around the world and yet you do kind of minimise the risk of having like fixed assets. Like we've seen that's an inherent risk now with the likes of like profit taxes, see getting thrown at a whole lot of producers. So I'm hoping with services can kind of sidestep a lot of that and still kind of yeah keep quite broad exposure across the world. Like any of the offshore drillers, really, none of them are focused in just one one small area. Like if to use an example, ones that we did get hit was if you're in the sort of the UK as a as a producer or a service company there, and they obviously levied the profit tax. So there are there definitely are risks like that to be mindful of. But overall, I feel it is yeah does reduce the risk substantially having sort of a diversified portfolio of these holdings, especially after the sector's consolidated so much. It's gone from sort of 13 drillers, if you go back to the start of COVID now, down to the big names, is only sort of a handful. Which do you think is... We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. more comparatively undervalued or even using that word distressed oil services or uranium. And I say that as somebody who's had a number of big fans of uranium in spaces in the past. I'm a believer in the thesis around uranium more than anything else, but it's a hard thing to get some persistent momentum in if you're a trader, right? But if you look at it from a fundamental perspective, which is a bigger, you know, fat pitch? Well, I own both. So yeah, I can make good arguments of both. The problem with uranium is it's very hard to express a view because you've got to go into a whole lot of shit codes. Honestly, like you get diluted, you get even just recently you've seen all the risks of being involved in the likes of Africa where they're just constantly thrown around. Like sort of even recently in Namibia where there was, I think it was miscoded, completely taken out of context, but talk of sort of nationalizing assets or taking a, a sort of a government's free stake. So that's what makes uranium quite hard. I think the uranium thesis itself is pretty rock solid. It doesn't take rocket scientists to sort of go around the world and work out the requirements of the current reactor fleet and see that we're not mining enough uranium. The cost yeah, per pound needs to go higher for it to be economic. So that, that will have to that will have to happen at some point. What is tricky is yeah, getting quality ways to play it. Obviously, like going back to the idea of playing it just with pure plain oil with just option futures probably the cleanest way to play uranium is just straight with the likes of sport and plain physical uranium 
But then, yeah, there's always a point that there's just a ton of talk in some of the miners and you know that's a juicy narrative that Wall Street will chase at some point. So I think a, a split of those two, but if you can talk about just essentially fatter margin of safety, it has to be yeah, offshore drillers with just so much, so many assets on the books at such a discount. Like you um been quite heavily into the sort of the offshore, the OSVs, the offshore surface vehicles, and there you can just pick them up for cents on a dollar. Like I'm thinking of Tidewater now with a fleet of to that 200 with the each vessel sort of being valued roughly at sort of call it 12, 13 million per vessel. And their replacement cost is minimum probably 70 million, if not higher. They had an acquisition, another 37 of them, bringing that sort of total cost down to maybe 8 million per vessel. And then, yeah, you've just got this fact that there's a lot of the yards that produce them have all gone out of business. And it's another sort of big view I've got is that we are going into an energy crisis. So any asset that took a lot of energy to make is going to be far more valuable moving forward. It's just going to be in a future where energy is quite tight. You're going to see the previous costs, the build costs are going to be far higher. And this obviously goes for rigs like the likes of a drill ship. I don't think we'll see them built in the future for sub sort of a, a billion dollars minimum. And so that gives you quite a fat moat when you're going into these at, at very sort of depressed valuations compared to what they were, what they paid for. And then obviously the multiple write downs and bankruptcies. Let's talk about other commodities. I like that in your profile, you explicitly say what you're investing yep. in. Right? <laughs> you're reading oil, coal, and tin. I don't hear a lot of people talk about uh, tin as a investment allocation, but let's talk about both coal and tin. First of all, you're in these areas. Mm-hmm. What do you have your biggest positioning in of those different areas? And why coal, why tin? So, yeah, I've got a still very decent position. So it's probably what it be now, between a quarter and a third of my portfolio is still coal. So I took a large position in Peabody Energy. That was going back a few years now when it was threatening with a second bankruptcy. So that's, yeah, it's often when I get most excited about assets is when they're just relisted. So sort of go through how things look when they've been relisted or the likes of Peabody when it was threatening a bank to go into a second bankruptcy and just for it's just crazy cheap and the optionality here is very high. And so the overall thesis of coal is simply the fact that, um, yeah, we, as we've seen in Europe, when pretend we can trans- transition quickly on renewables, every time it falls short, the quickest way to sort of break the glass fallback is coal. And I also think renewables don't work in a lot of places that they're being projected to have a high uptake. You've seen the likes of China keep building at a rapid rate. And I think a lot of the developing world is going to be relying on coal for decades to come. And at the same time, supply is probably in a worse state even than oil. And so that means, yeah, have got a lot of runway there at extremely depressed valuations. Like a lot of these things you can buy at one or two times cash flow. And even if they never get sort of re-rated by the markets, you're gonna you're gonna earn your way out of buybacks and dividends. So that's be a cornerstone of my portfolio. I've talked about like the likes of White Whitehaven. That was my call it like a hurdle rate, like just a position that if I 
position that I kind of benchmark all my other investments against. If I don't think they can outperform Whitehaven, why why am I buying this new investment? And to, for anyone that hasn't heard of Whitehaven, at the moment it's trading like half cash, still pumping out cash flow, buying back its um, stock like crazy, just produces Newcastle, sort of high energy coal. And at the moment it's kind of in the dumpster because everyone sort of thinks the energy crisis is over. But for anyone who's been paying attention, it's never really about Russia. Like that's what I've seen a lot of is the whole energy crisis last winter was just the result of Russia, nothing to do with focusing on sort of low energy density energy sources. And that's why I think we're just going to continually see these spikes and rushes back into into coal every time sort of realize that, yeah, made some serious missteps with energy policy. Let's go to um, some of the audience mm-hmm. here. So the interesting thing to note is if, if you look at sort of China's internal coal production, it's actually struggling to keep up with it, its own demand. Like they, they're mining, some of the most interesting stats were last year, they're mining a lot more, but it's just lower quality coal. Even when the sort of the production goes up, the actual energy output goes down. And that's, that's something you see across the world with coal is there's plenty of coal out there, but there's actually not a lot of high quality coal, sort of like, well, Newcastle essentially is. And Newcastle is getting the most capital starts because the sort of lower energy density coal is often more sort of open pit and so easy to get at, whereas sort of like Newcastle is often from underground mining. So it needs far more capex, far more sort of long time frames. And since it's more located in the likes of Australia where it's been capital starved, those just those mines aren't getting aren't getting the sort of investment they need. And also with the valuations, like why why would some of these companies be investing in building out the mines when they can just buy back their stock? It just makes more sense to buy the back the stock at the current valuation. And so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's a good way to focus on coal is to really focus on the high energy coal is I think that's going to be where the real value is moving forward as I just see it being far more scarce and required to a certain extent with, with obviously the whole pollution issue in China. They Burning the dirtiest stuff has all the negative environmental impacts and they've also had really bad experiences with like fog and stuff. So they do, before they can sort of transition to, they can't transition in the same way to sort of gas and even renewables. So just burning cleaner coal is also a way to sort of reduce smog. Yeah, well, I've, I was recently just reading that JP Morgan, they've just released their, their annual energy paper and it's just the way when you read the alternatives to just using met coal, they're so uneconomic and so far off at the moment. I just don't like, a, like an interesting stat is that the average blast furnace in China is only it's only twelve years old. So that these are very young assets and far more efficient than anything we managed to do with the likes of like a few the the sort of the green alternative is the arc furnace that's running off renewable power. Well, that's far more high cost. You can't produce virgin steel. You can only recycle steel. And the ways that they have managed to do it with some hydrogen, that's, yeah, just so costly. I think the, the green steel being produced in the likes, I think it's Sweden, it's, yeah, it's multiples of the cost. And at the moment, the, their production is only, I think it's half a percent of, or even less than that, of global steel production. So, yeah, I see a long runway still for 
still, granted it might not be, sorry for me at Cole, granted not might not be as attractive as it was previously with sort of Chinese construction looking to roll over. That's the main thing I'd be focused on with sort of Met Cole. Let's just reset the room for the remaining minute or so. Everybody, please make sure you follow Fergus Cullen here on Twitter. Tin. Let's talk yeah. about Tin. Uh, <laughs> I, I, the only time I ever think about Tin is Wizard of Oz, right, with the Tin Man. So what's the whole thesis or argument around Tin? Yeah, so full disclosure, I've actually sold my Tin a few months ago. But I still like the overall thesis, and I'll probably be back in it at some point. Tin, the easiest way to explain tin is it's like metal glue. So it's what well, it is, I think half of it's used in solder. And so, yeah, it's really a play on electronics. It's the unsung hero in a lot of the metals. Is gets very little focus. It represents a tiny cost in any electronic item, but it's obviously can't happen without it. And so it's a very niche little market, like tiny compared to the rest of the metals market. And yet the supply pitch is pretty pretty grim. And so that's why I'm very bullish on it over the long term. It's got had a lot of issues with the likes of Myanmar with the whole coop going on there. They were a major supplier and they'd also essentially high graded it. So not only is the sort of geopolitical instability there not helped the supply situation, they were already in massive decline anyway. And so if you kind of combine that with the overall sort of demand for it along with the electrification of the world make it pretty damn attractive moving forward that said there is sort of part of the reason i got out of it was just sort of an under appreciation for how much demand may have been pulled forward for electronics and covid like everyone actually doing homeschooling and everyone sort of really bought a lot of electronics and pulled forward a lot of demand there and just as a result, we've seen yeah, a lot of weakness currently and believe should that should work through the system in time, but it's better trades on a shorter time frame, which is particularly like just the, the fossil fuels. I think we are going to see pretty substantial moves in the likes of oil, coal, and hopefully uranium over the coming year or two. So in the, in the direct message to me on topics, you said you believe that we're at a big inflection point and maybe it's a little bit ominous but i wasn't quite sure <laughs> what is <laughs> bearish or maybe what it's bullish or what it's bearish on for whatever it's worth i think we're at a big inflection point too but it's not clear to me in what way it breaks but you know even if you just look at kind of more recent price movement so when you say inflection point in what uh, in what asset class is, are we talking inflection point in in a cycle in volatility what, what is it that you think we're in a big inflection point on i think it's inflation would be the main one that's the big sort of inflection point. And it's just purely the idea that, like I try and stay away from macro, but just a quick one of like the important overview is the fact that we're at the point that there's been far too much money printed, far too much easy money around the world. And with rates starting to rise, the US is going to be in a point at which it has to keep printing money to fund its expenses. And it's like a key view of mine is that the Fed's balance sheet is just going to have to keep expanding. And so the hunt becomes this sort of you're going from a deflationary world where you're trying to find growth and so you have to hide out in tech to a world where to inflation is just going to run hot for an extended period of time. And so you're going to have to have this hunt for scarce assets that are going to hold their, their value, this sort of switch from financial assets to real assets. And I think that's the big inflection I'm talking about. It's the idea that it's no longer just going to be 
sort of paying anything for growth to this. And that's what we've seen. And I think is a lot of the sort of re-rating of the valuations people are prepared to pay for the tech or maybe not with the likes of NVIDIA and Microsoft and Apple recently. But I think you're going to see their valuations slowly get crushed as people go from growth to actually wanting cash flow to keep themselves out in front of inflation or hard assets to keep themselves safe in inflation. I think that's the big sort of flexion we're going through. And I think it's going to take time, but I think people are just starting to realize it. And I almost see us in the sort of the eye of the storm at the moment with relation to sort of commodities and particularly energy. Everyone sort of has got used to really a sort of a commodity and energy abundant few decades. Like we've had the likes of China ramping its coal production 7X over the last two decades. So we got used to just super cheap energy that they can make anything for cents on the dollar. You had the shale boom, which was just a, a cash burning dumpster fire of capital. But we as consumers just got super cheap energy and got used to that. But there's no new sort of energy, cheap energy boom. And I think that's going to that's gonna really hurt and hit home over the coming year or two as inflation is just going to keep picking up and cost inflation across all the areas are going to really take off. So that that's kind of the inflection I'm talking about. So just to play devil's advocate, so uh, at the core there's, you know, you can argue two sources of inflation, right? One is cost push, which is much more the commodity oil side, and then the other is demand pull. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So, you know, mm-hmm. coming out of the pandemic, a lot of it was cost pushed because of supply chain disruptions. And then the demand pull was everything we could visibly see, right? Everybody traveling mm-hmm. and, and spending like crazy and all that. The dilemma that I have with the argument that inflation stays elevated, I could be totally wrong on this, is that mm-hmm. the market itself doesn't seem to believe the demand pull will persist. So, you know, I, I made a point of that earlier today. You know, retailers, you know, as a proxy for consumers, you know, they're pretty much at the October type of level relative to large caps. They're just hovering there, you know, and it seems like there's just not a lot of momentum on anything that's consumer-based. U.S. home builders are strong. Now they may be rolling over. So it seems like from an intermarket perspective, if you believe that stocks are a discounting mechanism of the future, the consumer stocks are not anticipating a continuation of the demand pull that we've seen. So if that's right, then, you know, sure, inflation can stay elevated, but it probably has to be commodities that do the heavy lifting. But maybe I'm wrong on that. But that's just sort of my interpretation. I I think a lot of people are under the assumption that the consumer is going to keep spending at the pace they've been spending, and that's what's going to keep inflation elevated. But a lot of the stocks that are sensitive consumers clearly are not giving the same message. Yeah, I definitely don't see it as the same sort of, as you say, like demand pull. Like I don't. That's not the basis. I just think that the supply side's been so hammered. Like we've had this whole, yeah, because I should touch on China as well. Like they've switched their whole model as such with like part of the reason they were growing at sort of 9% and putting such sort of deflationary pressure on the world was they needed to create jobs for sort of 20 million odd people a year. And so it was a rough rule of thumb that if 
could create sort of 8% GDP growth and you would create those jobs for the 20 million people. Now their demographics have really shifted and they're sort of losing, I think by 24 or 25, they'll be down to sort of negative 10 million jobs. So that whole deflationary push is also kind of is going to be out of the system and then you've just got a whole lot of people climbing the S-curve. So that's, yeah, there's another part of demand, but also it's just this simple idea. It's kind of the demand that doesn't have to be that strong if supply is just getting absolutely destroyed on the back end and it's just this complete underinvestment in not only energy but just all commodities and even all um, every sort of CapEx-related area. Just everything's been financialized and very little's been put into real-world investment. So that's... I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that was the thing too. It's like everyone, I think, was under the they had that narrative, right? That as as the reopening in China takes place, that's going to cause another big surge in energy prices, and it just hasn't happened, right? Yeah, Which I think it's caught a lot of people offside. So, and I tend to be cynical of narratives in general, but what would it take for you know China to really be a bigger driver of the commodity space? I mean. You and I both remember this the commodity super cycle, which you know benefited Australia quite a bit from whatever two thousand to two thousand six, two thousand seven. But and you know there still needs to be a lot of infrastructure that needs to be built out. But just seems like there's no real catalyst. If you didn't have it from the reopening, what's it going to take? Well, I think one of the catalysts is obviously this the whole transition, like the idea that we can continue to starve the sort of original energy system and spend. How much was the Inflation Reduction Act? Well, it's like hundreds and hundreds of billions on this transition. And that will obviously create some demand, but I see that being hugely inflationary. And then when we find that that's going to cause a lot of issues, and also going back to what I was saying as well about sort of printing the difference, see continuing to print money to try and pay for over the problems moving forward, which here will be demand. So I don't think governments are done spending <laughs> and see that yeah that since you're trying to take up provide some of the demands as well and yeah just coming back to the fact that all these real assets just capital starved across and so that's why i think inflation will stay largely elevated it's not to say it'll be a smooth ride i think it'll be up and down kind of like we're seeing now like if you go back to the previous inflationary periods it was never just to cruise up but you would get a spike and then it would settle and then you'll very get an even bigger spike i see that sort of being the road forward it'll just it will be volatile so all this has obviously been you know kind of more longer term you know wind at your back type of arguments around yep. commodities energy but we should address time frame so because you're handling yeah. tree bird right so it's funny i mean i think now people think being an investor means having a position for three months uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not right. It's not what it used to be, right? It's certainly not what you see in the institutional uh, side of things. So you've got these views, but you know, what's your own turnover like, and and how often are you actually trading? What are your timeframes? Yeah, so that's yeah. I've always kind of battled with that. I should, should be sort of long term trader, Fergus. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not actually much of a trader apart from obviously all the income and option stuff. That was very short term focused, and that used to was how I sort of traded a. A salary for myself, but now the average sort of time frame I'm taking a position for is three to five years. So yeah, I should have probably said that earlier. Is a lot of the stuff I'm prepared to accept a ton of volatility to kind of capture 
a bigger trend. I'm wanting to get in super cheap where I have a big margin of safety. And in my experience, I generally make the vast majority of my money in sort of year three, year four. So that's that's what I've seen over my sort of experience investing. And uh, there's no edge really in sub a year. It's bloody hard to make money in the short term. I, I think anyone's fooling themselves if you think you've got a clear view over six months to a year. It's just too hard. I think mentioned in the sort of topics for retail investors, you've really got three advantages over kind of like institutional smart money and that's time frame. So you can just sit on your hands and wait for something to play out whereas someone's got sort of investors they want to see like quarterly results so they can't they can't afford to have something that isn't sort of working the whole time otherwise people just pull the money after a few quarters of poor performance got volatility which is one of my favorite studies is this key can't remember who did it which is even god would get fired as an active investor it was the idea that if you were god and you could look forward i forget what the time frame was two three years and pick the it was the 10 best performing stocks and you knew that they were going to be the best performing stocks over the period, you still get fired by sort of the investors for running too much volatility in the fund. And so it's always back in my mind that sort of, I think it was Bill Miller said, like the price you pay for performance is volatility. So just accept it. Don't think you can ever minimize it. And lastly is illiquidity. So that's what I've been doing a lot lately. I've been hunting through small exchanges and looking for, there's just some absolute bargains out there. Some companies out there are, really well positioned for what's to come and trading mostly cash, ton of assets on the books, and they're just too small. They're like sub-100 million, so they're just being bought by insiders and a few value investors, and no no bigger money can touch them because there's not enough liquidity. Yeah, but first of all, I give you credit for admitting three three to five years because <laughs> I think you know you yeah. normally – on Twitter, you have people unfollowing you. It's like, oh, what is that? That's a lifetime. But yeah, that's the way you have to be, obviously, when it comes to this. But I, I do think that, and I'd argue there's a lot of there's a lot to the idea that while it's harder to be an investor because of the temptation to trade, it's also easier to be an investor because if you're a true investor, you're sticking to something that most people are over trading on, which means you probably have much better longer term returns than they do, as long as you have a kind of well formed thesis. But you and I both know that that's easier said than done. God, yeah. It's the hardest thing. I've even got yeah, got some hate mail recently with the likes of Whitehaven. And it's interesting because it's never been more attractive than now with its like cash position, its, its buybacks. Like you, you, if a company's engaging in high level of buybacks, you actually want the stock to be cheaper. It's like accretive to you over time. But people are just staring at the the price action and getting pissed off that it's given up a lot of the move over the last 12 months. And I think... That's just yeah, short termism and a mistake. You got to be focused on the value and where you think this is going, and keeping an eye on sort of having a having a decent margin of safety. But yeah, invariably everyone is kind of gets caught up in the stock price, which never helps people make good decisions. I'm curious in in Bali, is there like a is there a good community of other traders around you? I mean, you moved you know to a different part of the world. Obviously, um, what's the community and support system like? So. I don't actually ever tell anyone I'm a trader here because there's too many bloody crypto traders for a while. So you see people's eyes light up and then they'll try and tell you about the latest shit coins. So yeah, I honestly don't even tell anyone here for a long time. But I've got a lovely community here of just friends. We all got far closer during COVID with no one being able to really leave. And yeah, it's got a fantastic expat community. Just where I live, I'm just above Changu, which is kind of like a tourist mecca here. 
I live a few kilometers up the beach in a little place called Ferrarinan and uh, and just love it. Yeah, it's we've got lots of friends living in the area, sort of spend most mornings either surfing or going and doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's, my wife says it's an obsession, which I argue that probably is. And uh, yeah, it'll be a quick overview of life here. So you've got a sub stack as well. Is there a particular <laughs> focus with you know the types of writings you put out or is it more just you know musings? So my, my sub stack is just a, sort of a, a weekly email I send out of the, my favorite article for the week, my favorite podcast for the week, best chart I've seen, best tweet I've seen, something I'm pondering. It's really just a, it's a free little email with some stuff I find interesting. I intend to do some more long-form writing on it at some point, but yeah, I haven't found time with a baby at the moment. And yeah, that's kind of the idea there at the moment. So I, uh, I don't know if you've ever, if you've given thought to this, but uh, you know, when your baby is an adult, do you think that trading is going to be a thing? <laughs> I mean, there's uh, a, <laughs> and actually, I say it tongue in cheek, but I, I Listen, I'm a fund manager myself, and I think you know, as much as I'm ranting against AI and you know the way the markets have behaved, I get it. You know, longer term, there is an argument made that AI is going to replace a lot of things, including you know driving, you know, from the autonomous side, and then you know even the need to trade to begin with. This has been your profession. You think the profession mm-hmm. will be around in you know in 20 years' time, 30 years' time? Honestly, can tell you that I hope it is. I'd love it. I think it was. Yeah, he said, I think it was Sean O'Shaughnessy. No, Jim O'Shaughnessy, sorry. And he's saying the only sort of lasting edge is taking advantage of sort of retail behavior. But I don't know, maybe AI starts to really capture that. At the moment, when I sort of playing around with the likes of Chat GPT and a few of the other offshoots now, is it's just pulling forward like market consensus, which isn't actually very useful for investing. Like it's, it's useful to sort of use it to trade against. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe who knows how quickly it develops and if it can completely sort of replace us. But for now, we got to take take advantage of people's emotions and just making bad decisions. I think that'll be around for time to come. So yeah, I'm hopeful still be able to take advantage of sort of cyclicality of stuff for quite some time. Yeah, the one thing that is in a secular bull market is stupidity. I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> the age of social media and a lot of the stuff that's on FinTwit. But anyway, I think it's a, yeah, that's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. So, Fergus, for those that want to you know, track some of your thoughts and work, what's the Substack and other, or other places that people can find you? Yep, so just yeah, the Substack, just Trader Ferg, Substack, and got Twitter, and also yeah, have a show on Crux Investor was the three places I put my work out. Yeah, so that if anyone wants to follow, probably just jump on the Substack and see if you find what I find interesting and then follow me from there, I guess. Thanks everyone for joining again. This will be under Lead Leg Live on all your favorite podcast platforms and hopefully I will see you all soon. Thank you, Fergus. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. 
Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.